Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The second lesson from scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Listen now for the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like knows like. Today, synonymous phrases might be, it takes one to know one, or that's a pot calling the kettle black. About 10 years ago, a whole series of YouTube videos came out about people who had gained a significant following on the internet, and it was named Like Knows Like. It's a maxim that has endured over a long time. I first encountered it in a class on Aristotelian ethics in writing about friendship in the fourth century BCE. Aristotle believed that people of good character recognize other people of good character and that the best, most genuine kind of friendship that can exist between persons of good character, people who aren't using one another but instead want what is good for the other person, for the sake of the other person. Aristotle was drawing on an idea already in circulation in the ancient Greek world, the idea that being good enables you to know the good. This same logic was still at work in Paul's day. Surely both Paul and the Corinthians to whom he wrote were familiar with the widespread maxim in his letter to the Corinthians, we see how he applies it to their situation. He knows how infatuated the Corinthians are with gaining wisdom. In fact, they prize wisdom so highly 
that in Paul's view, they're becoming puffed up with it. They keep forgetting that the good, the good news that Jesus, in compassionate love for the world, humbled himself even to the point of being crucified on the cross. According to the maxim that like knows like, in order to know this wisdom, you have to be like it. It, it is recognizable to you because it resembles or resonates with something within you. Drawing on the logic of this maxim, Paul writes, for what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within you? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the spirit of God. On the basis of the logic that like knows like, that human nature can be known by humans and that the depths of God can be known only by the spirit of God, Paul wants to say that only those who have received the Spirit of God can possibly understand what the Spirit teaches. He writes, Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's spirit for their foolishness to them, and they're unable to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. For who has the mind of the Lord? But we have the mind of Christ, he writes. By drawing on this widespread maxim, Paul runs the risk of being misunderstood and thereby legitimizing a spiritual elitism, that there are some who are more spiritually advanced and some who are less spiritually advanced. That's not his intention, however, and he avoids it by returning again and again to the proclamation of Christ crucified. There are some truths that don't take any special knowledge to grasp. They are truths we know simply by being human. Ironically, however, our pursuits of more knowledge, special knowledge, can overlook these simply human truths. In her memoir, Empathy Diaries, author Sherry Turkle makes this point. Sherry Turkle is a professor at MIT who since 1976 has been studying the psychological and social history of technology. In her ethnographic research, she has interviewed hundreds of MIT students and faculty. She has sat in on MIT lectures and seminars, has eaten early morning breakfasts and late night Chinese dinner with computer hackers. She took programming courses at Harvard and MIT, attended meetings of computer clubs on the East Coast and West Coast, she studied how children meet computer toys and learn to program. As a sociologist and clinical psychologist, she has studied the culture of engineers, how they see and speak about the world. And she has explored how technology changes our relationships, including our relationships with ourselves. 
Over the years, she has observed how easy it is for a fascination with technology to take well-intentioned people away from empathy and its simply human truths. As an example of this, we're all familiar with the experience that we have when we meet with our doctor these days. So invested in the promise of electronic medical records, technologists have forgotten how important it is for physicians to make eye contact with their patients. Or students taking courses over Zoom opt not to turn on their video, forgetting how important it is for their professors and fellow students to know that they are truly present and paying attention. These are simple truths about human relations. In her memoir, Sherry Turkle draws the connection between her early childhood years and her professional interest. Not treating people as objects and trying to forestall technology's assault on empathy, she writes, became very personal for her. As she tells in her memoir, she grew up pretending that she wasn't searching for her father, whom she hadn't seen since early childhood. Only after her mother died did she actively pursue finding him. In the end, she hired a private detective who successfully located him. And when her father received a letter from her asking if he would like to meet and renew their acquaintance, he said yes. She writes about that meeting. She learned that her father was a rogue scientist. For decades, he had been working out of his own home, writing a book claiming to disprove Einstein's theory of relativity. Upon learning that she was now a professor at MIT, he was glad to note and said that he and she had been scientists together. We had done experiments from the start, he told her. Before she could ask what her father meant by this, he went on to talk about his scientific passions, some of which had been triggered by her birth. How does language begin? Is it innate? Could he make a groundbreaking contribution to child development? He explained then how when she was a baby, whenever her mother was not around, he used her as an experimental subject. In removing them from her father and never speaking of him again, Sherry Turkle's mother had kept this secret from her. It wasn't until she was 27 that she learned it that her father's love of science and its theories made it easy for him to lose touch with the humanity of his infant daughter, that he allowed his pursuit of knowledge to overshadow the simple human truth of her vulnerability. These realizations have no doubt contributed to her professional purpose of studying how technology changes the nature of our relationships with one another and even with ourselves. In our current relationship with technology, she writes, we are treating ourselves as objects. We are treated as objects when we are swept up as data to be bought and sold on a market, or when our attention is manipulated by our devices, not just to keep them glued 
us glued to them, but to determine what we read, what images we see, and what programs get to see us. We reduce ourselves to objects when we're addressed by machine-generated text or voices because to be understood, we can only respond in ways that objects can understand. A virtual assistant or a chatbot that offers friendship reduces a person to lines of code because that's all it knows how to do. But now technologists argue that to get the most out of such programs, we should treat them as the people they're pretending to be. We start to say that relationships between people and machines are interpersonal. As we know, tech companies are working hard to know us better than our friends and family, better than we know ourselves. What we like on social media, who we follow in our browsing history, expose things about us that big data companies and technologists build personas around so that they can predict what you like, who, who your close friends are, as well as who your friends should be. They've exploited the ancient Greek maxim that like knows like. The way Sherry Turkle explains it is this. We nurture what we love, and we love what we nurture. Therein lies a very human vulnerability. When machines ask us to care for them, we become attached to these machines and think that the machines actually care for us. This is nonsense. Whereas computer scientists have shown how smart artificial intelligence can be, now they're dreaming of ways that machines could also be companions of the heart, machines with empathy. But we know that machines cannot care for us because they are objects without a heart running on code. There's no way that the Apostle Paul or the ancient Greeks could have imagined how far people would apply this idea that like knows like. The maxim speaks still today to our tendency to become so infatuated with knowledge that we lose touch with the simple truths of the empathy and vulnerability that make us human. If we're not careful, we will become less than human. In Christ, God chose to be fully human fully vulnerable even to death on a cross. To know this is to know something about the heart of God, the depths of God. It's knowledge that the Spirit makes available to every one of us, that it might stir and elicit from the heart of every one of us the same empathy, compassion, love of mercy that the Spirit finds in God's heart. For who has known the mind of the Lord, Paul asks. But we have the mind of Christ, he affirms. Amen.